For this episode, I want to welcome my friend Rob. Rob, here on Mystery Inc., we cover mysteries that my brother and I find fascinating, and one that many people find fascinating is the Casey Anthony case, the case involving her murdered daughter, Kaylee Anthony. And so you were inside the home leading up to the trial, and so I'm glad that you're here and for us to talk about that. I think a lot of people will want to hear who you are and what it is that you do. I'm a bounty hunter, private investigator. I guess I'd also say teacher now since I teach the classes for bounty hunting and bail agents. I own a general agency, which is basically the in-between an insurance company and the actual different bail offices. So I kind of manage about 40 offices and liability. So I guess my main focus is bail from the getting the agent's license to actually writing bail, having them write bail, having control liability. And then of course, when the person doesn't go to court, doing the recovery side where the bounty hunters, if you will, that I also train have to go out and pick people up and take them back into custody and put them back in the system. Um, that's kind of why I was late this morning. I had to hit a house at 4 a.m. this morning. Just got back. So that's my main job. And then I guess my hobby is cold cases, serial killers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, You texted me this morning and you said that you were out on the job doing something dangerous, it sounded like, and that you might be running late. I guess that's just the life of a bounty hunter, huh? Yeah, I had planned to get a good night's sleep and be here and our time that we set. And then all of a sudden last night we got a tip that this guy that's, he's actually kind of a manhunt with law enforcement right now because he's done an additional crime since he's been out. And we got a good tip that he was in a house. So we wanted to hit it bright and early before he was awake at four o'clock. And of course it's an hour away. So get up at three, drive an hour, prepare, hit the house about 4.15 and we missed him by a day. So he's moved on. So Rob, I first met you in the year 2020, a year that's fresh on everyone's mind. In fact, Wendy and I were working on the map series for Foul Play. We were both in California and I came across you and I was in the, probably the very office that you are sitting there now recording this. You strike me as someone who is very original, honest, and someone who works in a very dangerous field, especially by the text that you sent me earlier this morning. But one thing more than anything, I think, is the honesty factor. You are very serious and you are very honest in the things that you say. I take everything that you say as the truth. So when you tell me that you have something to talk about when it comes to the Casey Anthony case, of course I want to hear it. I want to hear what your experience is. I want to hear what your opinion is and what it is that you witnessed yourself. And I wonder if you could just give me a quick intro into how you are related to the Casey Anthony case. Well, being a part of the bail industry, working with Leonard Padilla for numerous years, Leonard would always like to be in kind of high profile cases if he could, or figure a way to be around media and or whatever was going on of the highest stories. When we actually got involved, Casey was in custody. 
it was the very first time. It was after she had taken the detectives on the wild goose chase to Universal and lied to them. And they basically booked her for, at the time, it was just nothing more than like child neglect on the basis that she's mom, she doesn't know where her child is. And that's kind of all they had really at that point. So they put her in custody. Her bail was 500 thou. And she was saying on the jail interviews that if she got out, she would be able to find her daughter or lead law enforcement to her daughter or whatever, but she couldn't do anything while she was inside. So Leonard kind of came up with the idea of let's do the bond and kind of put up or shut up type of a situation. And that would allow us through the terms and conditions of the bail bond to kind of set our own rules as far as making sure that she's guarded to where she can't flee, she can't hurt herself, nothing can happen. Because that is always the risk of a bail bond, having someone out on bail anyway. At the same time, that would also put us at the center of this whole thing right in the beginning. And before we get into what your experience was when all of this stuff starts happening, I think it would be important to, of course, give everyone a quick summary of what led up to her having to receive the bail. So, of course, Casey Anthony was 22 years old, and we're talking about 2008. She was the mother to two-year-old Kaylee Anthony. At that time, Casey and Kaylee were both living in Orlando, Florida, with her parents, Cindy and George Anthony. And I believe she also had an older brother, and Lee was also living in the home. Do you know that to be true? No, he wasn't living at the home at that time. Okay. He'd already moved out. At kind of, I mean, he was very close. He only lived around the corner. And so he was quite involved, but he was actually out of the house, even in the beginning when she went missing. Got it. So Kaylee ends up going missing. And I guess what we know, and maybe you can help clarify this, because I think you probably know the case way better than I do. But the date that I found was June 16th, 2008. That's the day that Casey says that she tells Cindy and George that she's going to take their car and go on a work trip to Tampa. So she takes Kaylee with her to that quote unquote work trip. But what we really know is that she went to her boyfriend's house. Yes. I guess I would say the investigation was kind of screwed up in the very beginning. When Cindy calls in that 911 call a month later, she actually states the wrong date. She's just confused. She says it was June 9th. That was the last time she saw her. But it was later proven the last time that the world knows Kaylee was alive or in existence was Sunday the 15th, Father's Day, because there's that well-known video of her. Cindy took her to meet Cindy's dad, hang out for Father's Day. Sure. And she's singing, so... That's the last known, other than the conversation the next morning. But I mean, that's where we really know, hey, she's alive. She's on video. And that's the 15th. Yeah. So Casey ends up at her boyfriend's house. And the boyfriend and the people who hang out at his place say that Kaylee was not with her when she arrived. And for a month, Casey was at the boyfriend's house staying there. And again, no one ever sees Kaylee, and Casey doesn't mention Kaylee. Casey's not mentioning that Kaylee is missing. 
she's not mentioning anything at all about Kaylee. And during that period of time, Cindy says that she was trying to contact Casey. She would call her many times. And each time, Casey would say that Kaylee was either asleep or with her nanny. And the nanny, Casey was giving the name Zanny. And Cindy said that she was getting worried, but she also didn't think that the police would take a grandmother seriously if she were to call them saying, oh, my daughter won't let me see my granddaughter, which I find that very believable. I think if the grandma didn't have custody of the child, what's the grandma going to say? Well, I think just real quick on that point, a lot of people hammer George and Cindy about that, that you're the grandparents who are practically raising her. Why didn't you call? People forget that Casey was an adult. There's not a lot they can do. Right. I mean, she's the adult. It's She's mom. If she wants to leave the house and take her kid and not come back for a week, that's her prerogative. Yeah, she was 22. And I think if at that point, Cindy would have called the police, I don't know that the police would have done anything. It's Orlando. They have a lot bigger fish to fry, to be honest with you. A 22-year-old mom taking her daughter. At that point, Cindy had no reason to suspect foul play was involved. So the next thing that happens is Casey goes to a check cashing place with the car and that's where she abandons the car. Now her story is that she was running out of gas. So she ends up abandoning it, uh, just leaving the car there. So George gets a phone call that the car's found and the phone call was made, I believe by the tow company. So when George arrives at the tow yard, the employee and George open up the car And the employee was said to have made a comment about how it smells like a dead body in there. And Casey says that she abandoned the car because, of course, it would have cost her too much money to have the car towed to a gas station. She says it would have taken her entire check. But I wonder about that. Maybe you can enlighten me a little bit. But how would she have had a check Or where would this check come from if she didn't really have that job at Universal that she was lying about this entire time? Well, that's the issue that I'm sure a lot of people do realize that know this case. She's lied way before the incident with Kaylee. Right. Casey was always bigger than life, and that was part of her lifestyle. I mean, if you think about her lies, it's, hey, I'm working on two college degrees when in reality, she didn't finish high school. I don't have a babysitter. I have a nanny. When my dad borrowed the car, he didn't hit one squirrel. He hit two squirrels. I mean, it's always bigger than life. And it's always a lie upon a lie, even for no reason. That's just her life. And where I think nobody really put it together in the beginning was, is she had these elaborate lies going on with Cindy with always an excuse. Oh, I'm here. I had to work late. So we stayed over at Zanny's. And even to the point of Zanny, the name of the supposed nanny that never existed, she had used that for months before as well. They can remember that. Jordan Cindy said, well, yeah, I remember hearing that name from months ago. When in reality, back then, she had different lies. When she was with Jesse, Jesse's mom was watching Kaylee because, of course, Cindy's working, Casey's working. Poor me, could you watch my child? And then to Cindy, it's, well, Annie's got her. 
She's lying to everybody. Same thing with her friends. The friends knew Kaylee. Kaylee had been over there before she went. And I keep saying missing with air quotes because she was never really missing. But before she went missing, Casey had Kaylee over to her boyfriend's apartment, to the pool. So they knew of the daughter. And on the very brief times that there was a discussion of, hey, you know, I haven't seen Kaylee in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah, she's with my mom or she's with Sandy. And then, of course, to the mom, it's she's with Sandy. I mean, so it's always somewhere else to everybody. Right. The, one of the reasons I'm questioning this check thing is because, of course, we know a fact is that she did abandon this car. And I don't know why she would have had a check to cash at this check cashing place. The check cashing is about a block and a half from her boyfriend's apartment. Her story was is that she ran out of gas, conveniently parking next to a dumpster at the check cashing. The belief, at least I believe, is that at that point in time on the 27th when she did that, her car smelled horrific. She couldn't take it back to the apartment complex, which leads me to believe that that was around the time that she had dumped Kaylee and created this enormous smell. And so she's got to dump the car. And okay, I ran out of gas. She'd run out of gas the Monday before that. And she was always running out of gas. And basically because she didn't have a job. She barely had any money. The only money she had is what she was stealing from friends, parents, grandparents. She even took from Kaylee's account. She never had a job. She was just stealing money. So it was very plausible. Nobody even questioned when she ran out of gas. Okay, one more time. The only thing that was kind of weird was is her boyfriend said, well, okay, you ran out of gas. Let's go get some gas. She said, no, there must be some problem. My dad's going to pick up the car. And so that's how the car stayed there. And then she went with him. And then it ends up getting towed within 24 hours. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that smell of decomposition on the car was too great for her. And of course, you're not going to be able to get that smell out. So I think that she had to dump the car. There was no other choice for her, especially in Florida in June. When they opened the door, it hit them, the smell. So I think that's just what she did. But it's interesting to me that she seems to weave these lies that she just can't keep up with, that she will tell one person one story, and then she will turn her head and tell someone an entirely different type of story somewhat similar but a little just a little bit different and it's so interesting to me that she just can't keep up with all of those lies yeah but she is also really good it's kind of funny that yeah at the time when we were with her midway through that we would never even have thought that she was going to beat this case and get off but leonard made a joke actually to her and said that Yeah, when you get done with this case, I'm going to hire you to be a bounty hunter because you lie better than all of us. And he said that to her, and she just kind of laughed it off. But it's just, she was very good at having this fantasy life and telling people different stories. The one thing is, is people say, how could she be such a good liar? She wasn't a good liar. It's just that she had lied the whole time. So it was easy to play off of those continuous lies. If you corner in the onto something, she's not quick enough to come up with a, a solution. 
But because she has all these kind of lies going in different directions, it's easy to kind of pick up one and run with it. And that's how, like you said, weaving them together, I think made sense to people. Nobody really questioned anything. I mean, Sydney and George for sure knew their daughter lied for years to them. That's just something that she grew up with them, lying to them. Now, good or bad, maybe they might have enabled some of that a little bit, not holding her feet to the fire and calling her on that. Example being the graduation where they still had the graduation party, even though they knew she didn't graduate, but she took that all the way to the end too. She does that. And what you're talking about, of course, is they planned this graduation party for her. And up until the day before she was supposed to graduate high school, Casey was telling them, yeah, I'm going to be graduating, but Cindy and George couldn't get out of her where the location of her graduation was. So Cindy called the school to get that location, and that's when the school informed her, oh, no, she's not graduating. She actually failed a lot of her classes, which meant that Casey ended up dropping out of high school. Right. Yeah. But I think it's very weird when you look at Casey as a whole, because you can see that from what her friends and family have said about her, she has a tendency to be a pathological liar in terms of she will lie about things sometimes where there's no reason to really lie about it. But there are instances where you can see where she does benefit from the lie in terms of the case of her daughter who was missing, but then we find out she was murdered. So she does benefit from that lie. But it's very interesting as well because Casey seems to also live in that lie. It's almost like she convinces herself because of how much she lies to people that she just creates this almost alternative reality in her head and she just lives in it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, that was part of the problem, I think, in the beginning that they could see is that she... 100% believed her own lies. She could be standing in the rain and and looking you straight at the face and go, what are you talking about? I'm dry. It's not raining. Right. So going back to the car, of course, her parents get the car. George finds the very bad smell. So at that point in time, George and Cindy are getting very worried. It's been a month now that they've not seen their granddaughter So they get the car to the house, and I believe I read that they actually find a trash bag in the trunk, and they just throw it out. So the one thing that kind of, I guess I would say, is that there was so many little lucky breaks, I guess, for her case that kind of helped her out, were things like, so the car is towed. Well, the tow company, they have a process where they notify the registered owner. Cindy and George were still the registered owner. So when they send out that letter, that certified letter gets taped to the front door by the mailman. And they don't go through their front door. They go through the garage. So it's days later before they even find out about it. So they don't go to pick it up until later. So when you have that smell in that heat to where the tow company smells it when they first towed it to their lot, now basically baking until they're there, it's horrible. And when they walk up, George being an ex-cop, he knows that smell. He actually made the comment to the employee saying, boy, I hope my daughter or my granddaughter isn't in there because 
it smells like someone's dead. Yeah. And then the trunk opens because he's actually kind of worried at that point. He opens the trunk. He sees nothing in there. That's when that garbage bag scene. And so the tow employee goes, oh, it must just be this. And they grab the garbage and throw it out. Okay. And then just one more thing is that, so then George has to drive the car home. He's got all the windows down. It's that horrific smell. He pulls it down. They're both concerned about this. I mean, obviously they know he's spoken with Casey over those 31 days, but no one's ever heard from Kaylee. George had started a new job. Cindy really controls that house. And so Cindy's like, George, can't be late. This is a job. Just go. Go to work. I'll take care of it. So it's actually Cindy that actually tracks down Casey. George had to go to work. So that's why he's not there during the 911 calls and everything. He went to work. She's searching through the car, trying to clean it out a little bit, trying to clean the smell out or whatever, and find any kind of clues. And that's when she finds the bag with Amy's information, a resume and stuff. And that's her friend who she contacts and basically confronts her. And Amy takes her to the boyfriends. And that's how Cindy gets to where Casey's at. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. All right, so then Cindy gets to the boyfriend's house and goes inside, and evidently she sees drugs in there. Is that right? Yeah, apparently they're smoking marijuana. And she's kind of, you know, what's going on? Where's Kaylee? Yeah, and she sees her daughter, and she's not seeing Kaylee. I'm sure as a grandma, you would be pretty mad, upset, worried, confused. Can you imagine? I mean, it's out of my realm of knowing how to react. But evidently, that is when Casey is giving her again the name of this nanny, who she says her daughter's with. Cindy is saying, well, I'll go pick her up from there. Give me the address. I'll go pick her up. But Casey wasn't willing to give her anything. And do you know how at some point Cindy is able to get Casey to go home? Well, yeah, Cindy's demanding to Casey, you're getting in the car. We're leaving right now. And she actually left her stuff back there and just went with Cindy, got in the car. And you can only imagine they're arguing. Cindy's kind of pissed off because even some more just quick background. Cindy and George were practically raising Kaylee because Casey was pawning her off with them just as much. Oh, I got to go to work. And if you're not working, can you watch her? So this 31 day gap was new to them. That's not something they've ever had that long of a time that they haven't seen their granddaughter. So now you've got the car. Now, another thing, too, with the car, part of the lies that Casey was feeding Cindy was that she was supposed to be in another city. She was supposed to be over in Tampa, Jacksonville, and now they know, well, the car's towed here in Orlando. So all that's not true. So all these things are starting to culminate to where 
Cindy's losing it. She's demanding to see Kaylee right now. And when Casey's just got that wall up and she's not giving her any answers, that's when she makes that first call. And I guess in Cindy's mind, she wants to get her arrested for basically stealing their car. You know, that's the original. Yeah, so she calls 911 and she says, quote, I have someone here who I need to be arrested in my home and I have a possible missing child. I have a three-year-old who's been missing for a month. That's what she tells the 911 operator. So evidently after that, she's waiting for a police officer to arrive. And while they're waiting for the police to get to the house, Cindy overhears Casey telling her brother Lee that the nanny had refused to give Kaylee to her when Casey was meeting her in the park. So Cindy hears this. She immediately calls the police back again and asks to speak to an officer and said that there had been a kidnapping. In that time, she said, quote, I told you my daughter had been missing for a month and I just found her today, but I can't find my granddaughter. There is something seriously wrong. I found my daughter's car today and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. So that's what she tells the police during the second 911 call. So after that, the police arrive and they start to do the investigation. And pretty quickly, I think that they start to realize and unravel Casey's story. They start to realize that there are all these lies and something is wrong. Something's amiss with the story that Casey is giving them. So Casey gets charged for, it was neglect, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Of a child, because at that point in time, they didn't have a reason to charge her for murder or anything. So they charge her for neglect and they send her to jail. And at some point in time, she's released on bail and she gets an attorney. And I think that would be a perfect time to get you in and tell us your knowledge and how you get involved with this case. Well, she actually, she met Baez through somebody in jail actually only being in custody the first couple of days. So she already had Baez at that point. He actually had to facilitate the bond hearing because the bond was a high bond for that charge. And he wanted to see if he could get it lowered, obviously, and try to get, get her out. Any attorney would rather have their client out so that they can meet in their office instead of a jail cell. Even though there's attorney-client privilege, it's just better to be in your own office than in, inside the jail. So that was kind of a process where they had to have the hearing and that was going on. And then Leonard had come up with the idea that maybe we should bail her out and see what happens, see if she says she'll find her or lead people to her if she was out. So again, just kind of put up or shut up and let's just see what happens. I believe he contacted... Baez first. Baez had said, yeah, he doesn't have a problem with it. I mean, he would want her out. Contacted George and Cindy. George and Cindy at first were kind of leery. It was this guy wanting to put up a half million dollar bond on what's his motive behind it. From California? (laughs) From California, yeah. yeah. So there's a whole kind of a little thing we had to go through with that. We actually had to have a meeting with the family before they were on board, just a meet and greet type thing. We actually went to the vigil and met with them afterwards. 
But there was a lot of components going on. You have law enforcement kind of building a case at this point. They've towed the car. They're working through CSI things. They're working on statements. They've already got Casey and just numerous lie after lie after lie. The people that she's giving up that not only Zanny, but the people that introduced her to Zanny, nothing's matching. And so they're already building a case. It's getting more media frenzy. And then, of course, here in California, Leonard's doing his part by getting his story out there locally, which then kind of got into, we got death threats. We got death threats even before the bail was posted. We had emails that we had to turn over to the FBI just for protection that were basically like, you show up in Florida, you're dead. Wow. Do not get that child killer out. And I, I do have to say that working with Leonard all these years, the one thing I admire about him is he always kept an open mind. He said that in every case, that's the way to effectively go in it. Because you can talk yourself into anything. It's like people say that, well, Casey was the only suspect and they didn't investigate anything. No, that's not true. Law enforcement investigates everything. Everybody's a suspect until it all falls down to only one. You slowly find, well, this person couldn't have done it. This person couldn't have done it. And now you're left with the suspect. Well, Leonard goes into the same way. We have to go in with an open mind that maybe she is alive. Maybe Casey's got her with a friend. Maybe Casey wanted to escape the house, living in the house under her parents and become a victim in the meantime when she realizes that nothing's really wrong. I mean, who knows? We don't know until we get deeper into this. And so that's how it kind of all started. And then we decided to go out there and make this happen. We go out. To the, there happened to be a vigil that night when we arrived. So we went to the vigil. It was out in front of the Anthony home. There we met Lee. And then after it was over with, we met George and Cindy. And then they wanted to go have a secret meeting away from the public. So we did. We went to a church that he went to. There was a pastor that lived down the street that allowed us to use their office to go talk. George and Lee were very kind of had walls up of like, we don't know you. We're going to lay out some ground rules as well because we don't know who you are and why you're doing this. Cindy was more appreciative. Leonard always wore this black cowboy hat. She said, I always had this dream that a, a hero would come in riding a horse in a white cowboy hat. You must be him. It's just your hat's black. She was just excited because there was no way they were going to be able to get the bond and get her out. So, And how much was the bond? It was half a million. So that means at 10%, somebody's got to pay 50000 to make that happen. So... I guess the next part, there was a couple of days of working out the details of actually getting a half million dollar bond dropped at the jail. In that time, we had a meeting with Baez. Baez laid down his own rules, the no talking and trying to protect his client. And then once we were kind of all on a semi same page, we decided to go forward and get her out. Now, why don't you familiarize me and anyone who's listening with how this process works? So you have to put up 10% and you're also trying to make sure they're not going to flee because you could lose that money. Is that right? Well, it's a little bit worse than that. It's the bail agent makes in a normal bail, if they're bailing out a loved one, that loved one comes and brings that 10%. 
and that's the fee that the bail agent makes. So can't really use it for this example, but let's say it was half a million dollar bond. And let's say George and Cindy were putting up the 50,000. So they would come pay a bail agent 50,000. The bail agent would make that 50,000. However, the half a million dollar liability is there for both of them, the bail agent and the co-signer, or in that case, parents. So if she flees, that's when the bail agent would then hire a bounty hunter to go get them and bring them back. But if they were to flee and get away and not be found, then yes, the bail agent and whoever signed, the parents, I guess, would have to pay a half million dollars. So in this scenario, Leonard's actually paying the 50000 but the risk is a half a million dollars. And so because of that, a bail agent can put their own criteria on it. Sometimes it's, you got to wear an ankle monitor that we monitor. Sometimes it's got to be guarded. Sometimes it's, you can't leave your house. There's terms and conditions that a bail agent can put into effect to protect that big liability. So your stipulation was that you guys had to be there to guard her. And did she have to wear an ankle monitor as well? Well, separately from that, court ordered an ankle monitor. So that was something the court was doing. Sometimes that happens. And on the bail agent side, we don't really care about that because it's different. On a court-ordered ankle monitoring, if they cut it off or whatever, it's just like, okay, they got a warrant. That's all. Just tells them. We're more worried about them getting away anywhere because our half million dollars is at stake. So yes, she was on ankle monitor, but that was through court. So that's something separate. We're there, and our stipulation was is that we're going to be with you all the time. So you can't run away. You can't harm yourself. Somebody else can't come kidnap you and hurt you, whatever. We just have to guard that basically half-million-dollar bond, which is what she is at that point. So that allowed us to be in the house, transport her from there to Baez's office, and transport her to home confinement at one point because that was a stipulation of the court was to be on ankle wander and not leave her house. And which was good for us too. Was it always a thing that she was going to go back to her parents' house once she was out? No, initially at the family meeting, we had proposed to rent a kind of a secret location and house her there and allow the family to meet with her, hang out with her, whatever, but just keep her away from that media frenzy and that craziness that was at the Anthony home, George and Cindy were very adamant that they wanted her to be at the house, that that's the only way they were going to get answers from her, that they knew she knew, and the only way she would talk is if she was comfortable. And so we kind of agreed, okay, well, we'll just cart her there then. So why don't you tell me the first time you meet her? Was that when she was in jail? So... The bail bond's placed at the jail, and then there's a time they process, and she's going to be released. Orange County made it very well known that they were not going to treat her any different or any special favors. It wasn't going to be like a movie star going out the side door of the jail or the back door or anything. She was going to be released right out through the front, just like everybody. And they had put a, a little rope from the door out to the sidewalk, this little 
just this little tiny rope, almost a cord. And that was supposed to keep the media and the people on that side of the cord. She was going to come out the door and come out to where we were parked right in front. A lot of people probably remember that chaos of when she was first released. And how that happened was we're all kind of standing there. And Baez says, man, this is taking forever. Let me just go see what they're doing in there. And he walks in just to see, do we have an idea when she's going to be released? And nobody knew. But when he walked out, she was with him. And that's when all that chaos happened. Because we're all standing down by the car, not even close to him. The media is over here on the side. So everybody's rushing her. We're trying to get her to the car, keep the media away, keep the other people away. It was just a nightmare. It was just one of those Murphy's Law things. Everything that could go wrong did at that moment. Just to say, that's the first time I had actually personally been in her presence. We get her to the car, and it was Baez on one side of the back seat. She was in the middle, and there was another attorney. He wasn't very long on the case, but he was somebody that was with Baez. He was on the other side of her, and then I was driving, and Leonard was in the passenger seat. And then I had a car behind us. It was kind of a chase car to get us home. And so that was the first time that we're all in the car. And it was kind of a weird, quiet ride from the jail to the house. Nobody said anything. Nobody talked. And I remember looking at her in the rearview mirror because she's sitting right behind me in the center. And she's just sitting there looking forward like nobody's talking. Nobody's saying anything. And even Leonard, who usually can't stop talking, wasn't saying much and kind of talking more to me than anybody else. It's just kind of like two different sides in the car. Now, I know that you were, as a bail bondsman, you were trying to prevent her from running away, getting away. But at some point, were you also worried for her safety with all of these people always around? Yeah, that was another concern. And the concern was is that it had kind of been a media-driven case early on, and there were, like I said, before we even got her out, there were death threats. There were threats every which way to the family. You probably remember all the signs of people standing out, chanting baby killers, screaming at the house. And there was a concern that potentially somebody may, with a lynch mob kind of mentality, take matters into their own hands. And for safety of all of us involved, we had to be vigilant of that. Along with trying to just not really keep the media away, but just kind of try to get her home. I look at it as my job was just to get her from the jail safely home. Now we're containing the home and things are better. So we had this whole little plan of, as I was coming up to the house, I called George. George opened the garage. The media is all lined out in the street. My chase car pulls in front, blocks all those guys from rushing. And then I go flying up into the driveway and straight into the garage. George's going to hit the garage door and it's going to go down. And that's actually the perfect plan. However, again, Murphy's Law, as I come flying into the garage, you know how garage floors are a little bit slick. I hit the brakes. I almost ended up in the house <laughs> trying to get in there. But anyway, we got her in there. The door went down and now we're inside the Anthony home. Yeah, so why don't you tell me about that? What was it like that first day that you are there? All the Anthonys are in the home. 
Yeah, and that's kind of the turning point of where we knew where this was going, mainly because it was just a shock of counting the timeline. You've got 31 days of the supposed missing period, and then it was 30 days that she'd been in custody. So it was 30 days she'd been away from the public until we got her out. So this is her first chance to be in her own home with her mom and dad who have been looking for her child now for 61 days. And the way she came out of the car, all happy and smiles and, and just, it's not a grieving mother. It's not a panic. It's any parent would be panicking at that moment and running to the parents and what's going on? Where are we at? And Cindy and George are at the front of the car. Cindy's already crying. She comes running over and hugs her first. George comes up second puts his hand on her, but she's not reacting like a mother of a missing child. And that was the biggest shock ever. I mean, yeah, kind of knew the story. Yeah, we kind of knew that she'd lied. But being in the presence of someone who, you know, later we nicknamed her the cruise director because she always had a great mood. She was always good. Like, hey, what's fun today? What are we doing today? And, and that's that immediate first moment. It was like, man, we got a problem here. Something's not right. And the first thing she asked about was what was for dinner because jail food sucked. Again, not the first thing that should have come out of her mouth. She said she needed a shower. She felt like she stank from the jail. And then, of course, Cindy's hugging her and, come on, let's go get you cleaned up and then we'll, we'll make your favorite salmon patties. And it's just like, it's just like a family on a regular night that hadn't seen their child because they were on a trip or on gone away camping or something. And they just come home for the first night, not a crisis where there's a two, almost three year old child missing. And that was the turning point kind of right then. So it's kind of a weird scenario. So what I'm hearing going into it, you've probably had a lot of run-ins where you've worked cases that the media has covered. And so the media has a habit of, sensationalizing cases. So uh, what I'm gathering is you went into it with an open mind thinking maybe the media is just sensationalizing this and maybe she is innocent. But what you were witnessing that first day was, well, this is odd. Why wouldn't she be asking where is the investigation at? What can I do to help? Has anyone found anything? And what you saw was her more worried about herself. What is she going to do to make herself more comfortable? Is that right? Yeah. And it was, that was when we knew that there was a problem because it's just, again, yeah, you're taking the story of what you hear on TV and in the news, but now you're seeing basically what must have happened when she's lying to law enforcement. And that's not making sense to them. It's just like, it's a surreal thing to see the mother of a child, not even care, not even bring up her name, not even talk about her. There's no discussion about it. There's no crying. There's no being upset, being worried. There's nothing. I guess how I could explain it is, is at that moment, it was like there wasn't a Kaylee, like there never was. And that just does not make sense. And then it was the evening, so she has her shower. 
and then we have dinner, and then Baez is there. And it was kind of odd because Baez had brought over a movie for us to watch, and it was about a family. I remember it because it was weird. Baez had the whole family watch it. It's a story, and it's a very old movie. It was like a 48 Hours or a, one of the mystery shows or something, but it was really old. What I remember of it is is that they had taken the child out of the car, put it in the like bassinet or something, and they went into the house, and the kid vanished. And they thought it was the parents killed the kid. But it actually wasn't. But it was because of how they acted. They weren't acting right. They weren't acting like their child was missing. And it, the whole point was to basically tell Casey and the family that they have to put on this act, that they have to really be involved in this missing child. And it was mainly towards Casey because I think Baez being around her all those times, because remember, a couple of days after she went into custody, he had seen her numerous times while she was in jail. I think he already knew how she was. Like what was a shock to us, he already knew that she's not acting. Now she's going to be out in the public. She's going to be around us. She has to start showing this. Hi, I'm Shane, and I'm obsessed with overlooked and forgotten histories. These are the stories you should know, but have likely never heard. So I tell them in my podcast, Hometown History. Did you know the only American king was assassinated in Michigan? Or that a self-proclaimed emperor once reigned in San Francisco? I have a never-ending fascination with these kind of stories and a passion for local histories. Join me for Hometown History wherever you listen to podcasts. Prepare to enter an immersive world of tragedies, hauntings, legends, and folklore. Southern Gothic is a podcast that will take you deep into the dark history and haunted lore of the American South, exploring some of the region's most infamous tales. From the swamps of Louisiana to the shores of the Carolinas, isolated communities of Appalachia, and the bloody battlefields and earliest settlements of Virginia. This is where ghost stories come alive. Grim secrets are exposed and mysteries. Well, you need to listen to find out. Join us now at southerngothicmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I think it's interesting because even when her attorney, that's who we're talking about, is having her and her parents watch this video, it's interesting to me that her behavior still didn't seem to change. And did you notice a change? Well, no, and that was Casey's problem. She couldn't do that. She's not a very good actor. It's funny when you see her documentary now, she's obviously had a lot of problems of trying to act and trying to fake the tears and show emotion because she couldn't do that back then. She screwed up all the time. And Bias was constantly on her, like, you have to start acting like a grieving mother. But again, to tell your client that, that's why it just got worse and worse every day with all this stuff. 
is, is that that first night watching that video, I swear it's like the icing your case, and it's about a probably like in the 40s or 50s. This family comes home. Maybe they left the kid in the back seat, went to get the stroller or something, but they separated from the car and the kid vanishes. And because of the way they act, law enforcement immediately takes them into custody, thinks it's them. They did something. Their stories aren't really making sense. And it was a whole thing where at the end, they find out that how some killer or child molester is the one who actually came by just the wrong time and grabbed the kid. But it was a point to show Casey that she has to start acting like that. And what did you say with the end? It was a child molester? Well, it was either a child molester or child killer. It was somebody that took the kid mm. for those reasons. But like I say, the parents were taken into custody and prosecuted on it. It's interesting because in the end, that is what her attorney and her claim, I guess that's one of the stories that they come up with is that George was an abuser and that he was abusing not only her, but Kaylee. And it's really interesting because at one point her lie is that Kaylee accidentally drowned in the pool, but George is the one that found her and then disposed of her. And then later she claims that George killed her by drowning her in the pool it's kind of hard to keep track at when, at what point her story starts to evolve and change, but that's one of the variations. So it's a little interesting to me that the story that, you know, he would be showing you guys, this is how you show empathy. This is how you show emotions when your child's missing, that the ending of the story could possibly have some type of similar theme to it. Well, and that's the other thing, too, because the story changed numerous times. Like, the original story that she gave police was that she dropped her off at the nanny like she normally does and then shows up after work to pick her up, and they're not there. That was the first story. She tells Lee, or Cindy over here, is it, that she's keeping her from her. She's keeping her from her because she feels that Casey's not a fit mother and that she wants a child and she's keeping her, basically. Later, she actually tells us on one of the rides over to the attorney's office that when she went to the park to meet Zanny and her sister, Zanny held her down and said, we're taking your child and Kaylee got taken by the sister. So it went kind of from a dropped it off at the normal nanny to now it's a kidnapping to later Baez opens with, we now know what happened. She drowned in the pool, which is kind of funny because on the trial, he, his opening statement is we now know she drowned in the pool on June 16th. His closing, we will never know how she died. <laughs> like, wait, you're the attorney. You've even given two different things now. Right. But yeah, her story constantly evolves and changes. The one thing I wanted to say is about watching that movie was the interaction with Casey and her dad, Casey and her mom. Casey portrays in her, I call it a mockumentary, 
that she came out with, that she's afraid of him, she won't be alone with him. And that was nothing that was seen at that moment. I mean, it was more like, that's daddy's little girl. I feel safe. I personally don't believe there was any kind of abuse as far as sexual abuse or child molestation ever going on in that house. They just didn't react like that. And I've seen victims. I, I know how victims act, especially in the same room with the person that's abusing them. Not everybody in that room could play an act just for our benefit. So that's why none of that made sense. Of course, we don't know that till later because that doesn't come out until trial. Just another version. Right. Well, we know that Cindy says that Casey's attorney at some point approaches her and says that they are going to have to come up with some defense in order to get Casey out. And so it was a part of Cindy's belief that is why they came up with that story. So I think that was a part of why Cindy sort of defended her daughter and said some things. Because I think also a grandmother probably wants to stay positive and not think the worst about your surviving daughter. Especially at that point during the trial when they realized that Kaylee had been killed. Well, and that was just on that topic. That was brought up early on in one of the jailhouse interviews. So this is before the drowning theory. The public was throwing out all kinds of possible theories of like, where could she be? What could have happened? Maybe it was an accident. Maybe something. So in one of the first videos, Cindy says, oh, we just heard. Somebody was saying that Kaylee might have drowned in the pool. And then, of course, Casey responds, oh, surprise, surprise. That's what they're saying. I mean, so it was talked about, but I think you're right as far as Cindy wanting to believe anything other than an intentional act. But if something happened, it had to have been an accident. Of course, now at the latest, the A&E show, she said that she knows it couldn't have happened that way. And then towards the end, she says, well, maybe it could have. Like, like she doesn't want to ever give that up. And she was in denial. That I can say that when we were around her, she was in denial the whole time. I mean, all the way to December 11th. December 11th, when law enforcement made notification after recovering the body on December 11th that that was, in fact, her granddaughter, she refused to believe it. She didn't. She said, nope, somebody else's kid. That cannot be Kaylee. We're still looking for a life, Kaylee. And I get that. You want to have that hope. But you don't want to believe that. And I don't think even to this day she does. And that's part of the thing. I know we're getting way ahead of it right now. Yeah, I mean, we will be talking about the documentaries that have come out. So that's definitely something we're going to get into. But going back to the house, I'm curious... What other interactions you witness between her parents and any other times her attorney was coming to the house? Because, of course, the attorney was just representing her. The attorney wasn't representing her parents. And, of course, the attorney is at some point going to throw dad under the bus and, you know, blame him for all of that. And to back up something that you said about her interaction with her dad, she's not showing the same thing 
that you would expect a victim to show who had gone through abuse and who had witnessed kill her daughter in all of the jailhouse recordings she is talking about how awesome he is as a dad how so supportive he has been so that just backs up that that seems to be a whole fabrication that they pulled out of thin air and it goes to show that cindy seems to be accurate when she said that he the attorney told her that they were going to have to come up with something in order to get her off yeah moving to that point right before opening statements right before that happened yeah Baez went to george and cindy and said basically george you're gonna have to fall on the sword i'm here to save your daughter's life and you're gonna have to be the one that we use and he wouldn't go along with it he wasn't gonna lie he wasn't gonna just not tell the truth did you witness that conversation no that was the conversation that was told to us that Cindy was actually angry about because I felt bad because according to Cindy, George had no idea what was going to be said in that opening. And they were basically told, you're going to have to sit there. You're going to be on camera. You're the parents. You cannot show emotion. Whatever I say is what I say. And so he had no idea at that moment that was coming. Yeah. The only reason the judge allowed them to sit in the courtroom was a stipulation of them being there was they had to show no emotion. If they did, they would be kicked out and they would not be allowed to return. I mean, can you imagine hearing that accusation and not breaking down or showing any emotion at all? And of course, the public kind of judges him for that. But then you also have to take into the understanding that he would be removed from the courtroom and not allowed back. And from grandparents' point of view, they want to witness the entire courtroom to find out what they can of what happened to their granddaughter because they're not getting the answers from their daughter. So this is the best chance they have to hear all of the evidence. So that would be very, very difficult. Well, yeah, because in any investigation, it's not really a two-way street. People think it is, but it's not. Law enforcement is building a case, so they're not really giving them the details that they want to hear. But in the courtroom is where those details should be coming out. So, yeah, they want to be there 100%. Yeah, and that would be really hard for Cindy and George because they're only hearing what Casey is feeding them. So they're not hearing the facts and the things that the police really have dug up. And, of course, so I can see the confusion that Cindy would have and – Maybe you can talk about this as well, but it seems like Cindy had her belief and her belief was that she kind of was falling into believing somewhat of what Casey was spewing out, that there was some truth in it. But George seemed to have just not believed any of it. He seemed to have been like, this sounds like crap and it's crap. Yeah, well... You have to understand, too, there was so many theories and possibilities in the very beginning that they were going in all directions. I mean, obviously, law enforcement is doing an investigation. They have scientific evidence that they're working on along with questioning people and talking to people. But, I, I mean, I don't know if it was the cop in George or just 
being who he was, that he's kind of doing his own investigation. Even Lee, Lee was his own investigator. Lee was, Lee kind of cracked me up. He had a binder he carried around and was taking notes all the time. He's doing his own investigation. He was very protective of his sister. Like he was 100% sure she didn't do anything to her daughter. We got to get to the bottom of it. Well, and you don't want to believe that your sister or that your daughter is a monster. Because ultimately, if you killed your daughter, that's what you are. You are a monster. And so I think that's a, a natural reaction. You want to believe that they're not capable of that. That someone you care about and love, they're not capable of that. And also, if they are capable of that, that means that your granddaughter or your niece is dead and that she was murdered by someone that you care about. That's an absolute worst case scenario for everyone. Right. And I try to explain it to people all the time when we get discussions about this is that you see it in the drug world, substance abuse, no matter what the abuse is, alcoholism, drugs, whatever. On the outside, let's say the son has a drug problem and you see the parents and you see how the son's and you see that drug addiction, you're like, what the heck? He, he's bad. He needs help. And the parents are like, oh, he just doesn't feel good that day. And it, it's hard to see it, I think, when you're on the inside. I think you have that love of your loved one that you just, you don't think it, you don't want to think it, and you even make excuses. The alcoholic that can't get out of bed, well, I wasn't feeling good today, makes excuses for him, which kind of enables them. And, that, and that's that vicious cycle. Well, this is the same thing. You've got this horrible crime and monster. You're not going to think that. And you want to do anything other than that. So where I was going with that is that in the beginning, they had the friends that had a trip to Puerto Rico. So that was a thing. That Kaylee was kidnapped over drugs and taken to Puerto Rico. And why did these young kids take off to Puerto Rico and one of them stayed longer than the other? I mean... There's so many things going around. I think George and Lee both, especially trying to do their own little investigation, we're just like law enforcement trying to track down any lead away from what's right in front of their face because they just don't want to believe that. And I could honestly say I watched George kind of evolve. One thing I, I got to say why he took a beating too was that people came out and said, after the tapes and the interviews were released, that he would talk kind of freely and honest to the detectives. But then in his media appearance, he would say, got some leads. Kaylee might have been seen in this state. We're trying to contact the people over there. But then, then he goes behind closed doors to the detectives, and he's like, you know, I don't want to think what I'm thinking because this isn't adding up. I definitely don't want to think as bad as this is seeming. And people are like, oh, see, he's the problem. He's telling the cops and throwing her under the bus, and then he's lying to the media. Well, no. I can tell you why that was going on. If you remember one of the first calls from Casey to the house, Cindy was on the media, and she made a statement that made Casey look bad, and Casey blew up on her. If you remember that video, she says, oh, mom, I saw your little cameo on the news, on her little voice, and she says, I saw your little cameo, 
Yeah, and you don't know what my involvement is. And then Cindy's like, well, no, honey, you're not giving us answers. You're, you're lying. We don't know what your involvement is. So George was always playing the nice guy at the media, trying to get answers from Casey. Because Casey was watching the media. And she was button heads with Cindy because Cindy was kind of saying things that didn't make Casey look good in the beginning. And it's funny because well, it's not, it's not funny, but it's just, it's explainable because you see them as parents just truly in the beginning want answers. And then it gets to a point where George definitely wanted the answers, wanted the answers. Uh Oh, now I see where the answers lead. So I'm not going to lie but I'm not going to be as cooperative as I was. I'm just not going to go out of my way. I'm kind of backing off because I think in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, now every statement I make potentially has the state now kill my daughter. And as the grandparents, you've already lost the granddaughter. And now if things go accordingly, now you're going to lose your daughter too. I think even though her being a monster, that's still hard to wrap your head around. Still their child. Yeah, because you're talking about the death penalty, is that right? Yeah, the state's prosecuting going for the death penalty. And I think there was a realization in George's mind of, yeah, there's only one person that was involved in this. And, oh boy. I mean, he was a basket case. I couldn't imagine anybody I talked to, I say, if you're a parent, could you even put yourself in those shoes? And know how you'd react to any of that. Could you even fathom that first year you lost your granddaughter? You realized through everything up to this point that, yeah, it's 99.9%. She's deceased. And, man, everything's pointing to my child that did it. And I have people that I talk to that say, oh, yeah, my child did that. Oh, they're on their own. Yeah, I don't know you'd say that when you're in those shoes. I don't think any of us could. I mean, hopefully we never are. Because I don't think you can answer that until you're there. Right. Yeah, I think that one of the things that stuck out to me was that when Cindy says that the using the, the computer to look up, was it chloroform? Well, there was searches for chloroform, but Cindy said she was looking up chlorophyll. Yeah. And she couldn't spell. And she said that, oh, well, then I clicked it because it auto-populated to chloroform. So I went ahead and clicked it. And that was my fault. But then the prosecution was like, well, you were clocked in for work. So you should have been at work at that moment. But Cindy was adamant that that could not have been her daughter. That had to have been her. But I think in that moment, everyone was seeing that this is a mom whose granddaughter is not here. And she's trying to prevent her daughter from receiving the death penalty. And I think that in my mind, I think that Cindy likely said that in order to probably prevent her daughter from getting the death penalty. I'm not sure if Cindy thought that her daughter would be found not guilty. But I also think a part of that too is that there's always this doubt in Cindy's mind because as a mom, you just don't want to think that your daughter's capable of this crime. But later we kind of find out here recently when Casey does her documentary, or as you refer to her mockumentary, which because it's a crazy, crazy thing, 
But then George and Cindy take lie detector tests to fight off the accusations that Casey puts out. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to talk more about your experience inside the home. So I want to know, how is Casey passing the time? And how is the interaction between Casey and her parents in the house? And how does that evolve over time? Well, so there's the big incident the very next morning. We have that night and everything's kind of calm and Baez leaves and everybody's going to go to bed and do their thing. And just backing up for a second at that meeting that we had, Cindy laid out how this should play out. She controls it all as always. And she was kind of like, okay, so here's what has to happen. Casey will tell us in time. We have to just let her feel comfortable. We can't question her. And we can't back her into a corner or, or pressure her. She will open up. If you do pressure her at all or try to question her, she'll close up and we may never get the answers. You're talking about the meeting that, that happened at the church? Yes. Okay. Cindy's laying the ground rules for when we end up in the house and we're all together. So the very next morning, we wake up to George screaming. And he's got Casey by the shirt up by her neck, and he's shaking her, and he's like, you're going to effing tell me where my granddaughter is. I mean, he's pissed. He knows that she knows. He knows that he's had enough of all these lies. It's gone on too long, and he's screaming. And Casey, which cracks me up in her mockumentary, how she portrays herself as this fearing victim, can't stand up to him, she's just as much back in his face. I mean, she said, stop acting like a effing cop, screaming back at him. And then, of course, Cindy comes in screaming, George, I told you we can't do this. You're out of here. We can't do this. And there was also another guy in the house. Leading up to this, while Casey was still in custody, George's friend Jim, who we used to work with back in Ohio, had come and stayed. And so Jim was there and helping setting up some searching and some tents and flyers and stuff. So he was there. So he ended up having to take George in the other room. And Cindy's coddling Casey, like, just go back in your room. It's okay. It's okay. And then she put the foot down. George had to leave the house. He got banished to a motel for two days. And she said, I told you, George, you can't do that. Now we'll never get these answers. You have to leave the house right now. And George... Did exactly that. Him and Jim packed up and went to a hotel, which is just surreal to watch. It's just like, wow, you can totally see the dynamics of Cindy driving every move in that house. And George just, he does whatever she says. I mean, even thinking about he took criticism to go to work when they found the car. Why aren't you, you had that smell. Why aren't you right next to Cindy tracking the daughter down? No. Cindy says, go to work, you go to work. <laughs> it's just like, wow. So that was kind of the dynamics. And then once they're out of the house, now it's all fun and games. Nobody's talking about anything. And Casey's just watching TV. Cindy's making some food. It's like there is no missing child. That was the hardest part to get around. It's like, there's got to be something going on. We got to do something. Nobody cares. I mean, in that whole time, she never brought her up. She never cared to, never talked about her. So was your impression that Cindy was calling the shots in order to 
get Casey to talk? I think Cindy calls the shots all the time. I mean, just with anything. She's used to being the boss of the house. Yeah. And yeah, she had her way. George obviously had his way that morning and didn't get the answer because it was cut off by Cindy. But based on your previous conversation with them at the church, they seemed like they wanted to get her in the house so that they could try to get out of her what really happened to Kaylee, where she's at. Yeah, and I'm not sure if George had that planned all along or not, going his route. But yeah, their idea was was to, if we were nice enough to get her out, at least make her comfortable in the house, in a comfortable setting. And I guess through their experience, that's when she tells, I don't know why, because it doesn't seem like she ever tells the truth, but at least they get some answers. So were you actually sleeping in the house as well? No, so it came out eventually, but thankfully, I can say now, I had the premonition or knowledge that I never wanted to be alone with her. I actually was concerned about, just based off of what we knew, I never, ever wanted to be alone with her. So we had another female with us. And so it was kind of a game that nobody knew till the very end, but when I would park the car in the garage, the female would come out, get in the car, hide in the back seat, and then we'd have Casey come in and sit right behind me in the back seat. So there's like three seats. So she's in the way back laying down, Casey's sitting in the back seat, and then I'm driving, and then I have another person in a separate chase car. And I never wanted to be alone with her ever. So in the beginning, she would go with her like to the bathrooms, the shower. We didn't know Casey would kill herself or whatever. Yeah. Two minutes after you're around Casey, you know that she's never going to hurt herself. So yeah, she's not. She's got too much of self-preservation that she's not going to hurt herself. So then it was kind of she could go to the bathroom, go wherever, and the female was just there. So I spent a lot of time in the house just hanging out, and then we actually got a trailer. We rented a trailer and put a travel trailer right in front of the house so at night then when everybody's going to bed i would go out and sleep in the trailer and then a lot of times casey actually slept with cindy she actually went and laid down next to her in her room when george was gone and then the other female just was in casey's room and you mentioned that george was a police officer right yeah back in ohio what was he doing then for work living in Florida at that time? He was doing security. I think he kind of fell into kind of the same line, but in the private sector, he had numerous security jobs. Sure. After George leaves the house, it's just Cindy and Casey in the home. Is the brother coming over often or does he leave? Not as much. He'd come over a couple times throughout that time period but he wasn't staying too long like he would come over and talk to Casey a little bit talk to everybody and then leave and he was more chasing down friends and things and he was doing even more of that while she was in custody he was trying to put his own little book together of what might have happened and during this period of time between Casey and her mom it's just normal life 
Like nothing happened. It's just Casey living her own little life inside the house. Yeah, except for we start to see how much attention Casey demands. That was another thing that was really bothersome is that almost the point of kind of irritating is that every day she went somewhere. She either had to go to home confinement in the very first day, and then she had to go to Baez's office. So we were always going back and forth. But first words in the morning of her to me were always, how many cameras are out there today? Is the helicopter out there today? It was like the Casey show and she was starring how much fanfare is out there. And I even, I want to say it was like the third day in or something, kind of played a game with her that she didn't know is she gets in the car and she goes, okay, so how many cameras out there? Do I look good? And I said, yeah, there was a shooting across town. And I think all the media must have had to go to that shooting or something because there's nobody out there. And the look on her face was just, I mean, she was devastated. She was so upset and so pissed, didn't talk, put her head down. It's like, oh my God, you're not caring about your daughter. You're just being in front of the media. I would relate her and I used to joke with Leonard that those two are the same. Leonard can't stand to be not in front of a camera and neither can she. Yeah, she liked the attention, it seemed. Yeah. And it was more than just even to the public side. There was an instance where we were sitting in the living room and Cindy's showing baby pictures of Kaylee. And she's like showing us pictures, showing this is her birthday party, just going through pictures in a photo album. And Casey goes and gets her photo album and puts it on top and says, but look at me, wasn't I a cute baby? I mean, really? Yeah, that's crazy. So I'm going to talk about the time where they come to arrest her for the checks in just a moment. But I wonder if there's anything that happens in the house leading up to the arrest. Or her second arrest, I guess we will say. Not other than the way they were interacting, where Casey's just worried about herself. I mean, it was the sunglass game, they called it. She would tell the female when she's getting ready, do I look good? Because me and Rob were going to play the sunglass game when we get in the car. And what it was, was she wore these big white sunglasses that you see around the news all the time. And they're around, and the, the one time she gets in the car, and she, she looks in the mirror, and she goes, look at me, don't I look like Jackie O today? On your head, you're just like, no, no. You're supposed to be looking like a grieving mother's what you're supposed to be doing but it's just not her so when we would drive i would kind of look over my sunglasses into the mirror to make eye contact with her and then she would bring her sunglasses down and it was like this little flirty game all the time and that was one thing that we always saw with her is that she's very flirtatious and she wants to be the spotlight no matter where she's at and again, all these things are just adding up to the fact that none of this makes sense to a missing child. Right. And then, of course, then you had all the public kind of getting more and more ramped up as well. Having problems outside and everybody, including Cindy and George, had their own attorney at that point. Their attorney would tell them, I would tell them, just stay in the house. Don't engage these people. But they couldn't help it. To a point, I get it. They're sick of it. 
trying to figure out what's going on. They've got all these people, random people from all over the country just showing up, trying to stand on their lawn. One time they were throwing little rocks at the window. They were knocking on the door and we're just chasing people off. At one point there was a band that rented a flatbed trailer and written a song about how she'd killed her kid and just came up and started playing right in the street. I mean, it was like the circus. For me, I had never in my life been involved in something like this. It was just chaos the whole time. And then of course the media was doing different live spots. Nancy Race, this was her main case at the time. So she was doing live spots right in front of the house right on the side of the street. And no, I think that was great, keeping the name out there and keeping it in the media, but it was drawing people from everywhere. I mean, even just people like, they would walk across the sidewalk in between the taping and the house just to be like on national TV. It's just, just sitting here like, what is going on with this zoo here? And it was getting aggressive. There was the incident where when the garbage was recovered by law enforcement from the tow yard and they found a pizza box in there in the garbage. So Cindy actually went to that as the excuse of, oh, that must have been it. It was the pizza. It had to have been the pizza and it smelled like that. Media did their own test, bought a pizza, put it in the trunk for a couple days to see if it smelled that bad. Somebody ordered a pizza to the Anthony home while we were there. We actually had a pizza delivered. And inside it said, to the baby killer. There's all this stuff going on. <laughs> Leonard, we thought it was kind of funny in a way of like, hey, we got a free pizza. And Leonard's like, oh my gosh, it's probably poison. Someone sent in a pizza to poison her. <laughs> you know? And we're like, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe we shouldn't eat that. You know? But there's just all these components of craziness going on. Right. And it was concerning. It was concerning a little bit. Kind of a funny story, I guess, is... One of the first times I was transporting her, I think we were going to home confinement and Leonard was already over there. And so I had Casey and the female in the car. And I always had what I call a chase car, just in case there was something to do something, we could use that car to block or whatever. And we had radios. And so we're going down the freeway and I've got this guy that's just on us. And I'm looking, and he's, he's definitely following us. He's getting closer and closer. It's just weird. We don't know what's going on. We've got all these nuts out there. So I tell my partner, I said, okay, I'm going to start to get off the freeway. And at the last second, I'm going to jump back on, and you make sure that car gets off. It doesn't fall us back on and then catch up to us. So we do that little move. Well, the guy tries to get back on and ends up kind of going into the ditch. Like he's really trying to get back on. He goes into the ditch. And so we get to the home confinement where we get out. And I'm looking at Leonard. Leonard's got the phone hanging it out away from his ear. He's obviously getting screamed at by somebody. And as we get there, Leonard goes, I think this is for you. And he hands it to me. And it's a lieutenant at the Orange County Sheriff's Department just screaming screaming at us that we ran their sergeant into the ditch. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe same team, maybe let us know. And what we didn't realize is they actually had a detail on us to make sure we weren't going to get her out of there and follow her too and just make sure that everything was legit. So it was kind of funny because after that, we had that little talk and I'm like, hey, we're cool with that. We don't care. We just need to know.
He said, yeah, we got four people assigned to you. There'll be three or four cards on you guys at all times. So then it became a comical game of when I would go somewhere, I would turn on the blinker and look in the mirror, and then they're like, four cars would like move over, and we'd do this everywhere we went. <laughs> Just following each other like formations. That's pretty cool that you actually didn't. I mean, and I think it is a really important thing that they should have told you <laughs> that they were going to be following you. I mean, can you imagine like seeing someone tailing you and not knowing who they are? Well, and that's the problem. I was like, being former law enforcement, I get they owe us nothing. They're going to do their thing and we're doing our thing. And it, and it was funny because once we knew like one time we dropped her off at Baez's office. And so when we dropped her off at the office, then we kind of go sit in the car. Leonard and I would meet up and talk or whatever, because we couldn't be in there with the attorney client privilege. And we noticed this car sitting across the street. And it was those guys. It was like three of them sitting in the car watching the office now. And so Leonard's like, hey, how about we sneak up on them and draw down on them because they're suspicious. And I'm like, yeah, we're all going to be drawn down on each other. But that's kind of the way it was. And once once that was out in the open, it was fine. And everybody was fine. Nobody had a problem. In fact, leading up to that arrest, I'll never forget that night. It was getting out of control. There was so many people in the street. Nancy Grace was doing a, a live spot. I was in the yard. There's actually video footage of this from Nancy Grace's show. And kind of comical is that Cindy, George, Casey, and it was also the night that Texas EquiSearch had showed up. So Texas EquiSearch had come to the house too earlier. That's, I can tell you that story. That's a whole other story too that actually goes to this. But just at the moment, so they're watching Nancy Grace live. It's almost like a Spaceballs moment. If you remember the scene from Spaceballs when he's like, when does this happen? It's happening right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a live spot. We're in the yard. I mean, my other partner because there's just so many people trying to come on the grass or trying to keep people back i actually called that sergeant i'm like hey i don't know if you're watching us or if you're where you're at but this is getting out of control and they said don't worry about it we're on the way we're going to take her back into custody and we're like okay good because this, this is getting bad and those cars come down the sidewalk just parting the sea of people and right up into the yard now mind you casey our other female, Cindy and George, are all sitting on the couch watching this, like, wait a minute, is that actually cops coming into our yard? <laughs> and then they get out, and I'm standing there in the yard, and they go inside, and they take her back into custody, and away she goes. In that same video clip, you also see a couple of Texas EquiSearch people, because that had happened just before that. And I could tell you about that. Is So Texas EquiSearch, Tim Miller has the... Texas EquiSearch out of Texas, they were going to come to town and they were going to do this huge search. And his program is kind of, he gets volunteers from wherever he goes, gives them a crash course on what to look for. And then a lot of eyes, a lot of bodies, and they go search fields and whatever. So part of his thing was he wanted to meet the family and talk to Casey. And Casey blew up on him. And Basically, Tim was just, hey, I just, where would be a good place to look? Where should we start? Here's a map. And Casey was just, I'm not looking at that. I'm not looking for a dead Kaylee. My daughter's alive. And she walked off. She said, I'm not even going to talk to you. 
I get that to a point, but in a way, they're just trying to help. Why not? But she was just adamant. She didn't want to talk to him. And we're all looking at each other like, what the heck? And George's friend Jim said at that moment to Tim, Texas Equisearch, he said, yeah. He goes, we don't know, but I'm going to tell you right now, that one in there knows. Because, yeah, she's holding all the cards. She had the answers. And she wasn't going to give any of it up at all. Not even willing to help. Join Rob and I next week to further discuss the Casey and Kaylee Anthony case. We will pull apart more of the web of lies Casey has spun, both then and now. I will also ask Rob to lay out what he believes happened in the Anthony home on that June night in 2008. I'll see you then.